Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We specialize in helping clinicians in private practice apply person-centered approaches to their clinical practice. If you're interested in our clinical mentorship or self-paced courses, check out our website, tkex.org. Today, I'm very excited to introduce for the second time on our podcast, physiotherapist and clinical educator, Laura Rathbone. Laura is one of my biggest role models and a leader in our field, coaching clinicians around the world on ways to embody holistic person-centered care. I've been working with Laura myself over the past year, and her coaching has been really helpful for me to open up my awareness and understanding of deep topics like act, philosophy, ethics, history, and social justice, and many more. So I'm looking forward to unpacking some of these topics today for our listeners. So Laura, really appreciate you making the time for us. Yeah, I know. It's lovely to be back. And, you know, like you say, this this has been an ongoing relationship and I have just loved uh, seeing how, you know, our friendship has developed, our collaboration has developed, your practice, your identity, um, you know, the way you em embody and express your morality in practice and everything you do. And I think that that's, it's just wonderful to be able to sort of look back on that and, uh, and take that moment. So thanks for the invite. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's um, crazy to think, 2020 was our last chat. So I highly recommend listeners to check that one out. But if we have an introduction for the listeners who may not have heard much about you, the ones living under a rock, who are you? <laughs> we'll go for the existential question first. We were just laughing about this, weren't we? I we was saying like, oh gosh, you know, every time I introduce myself, I think I introduce myself in a completely different way. So um, depending upon how, I, how I'm feeling in that period of my life and uh, I guess right now I'm I'm very closely like identifying myself with being a physiotherapist, which I think in the past I've found harder. Um, but also, you know, I'm a mom. I'm a, you know, I've got two kids. They're seven and five years old. Um, I solo parent, uh, which is a recent development. So that's also had an impact on how I identify and how I understand myself in the world. Um, I live in Amsterdam in the Netherlands at the moment, but I'm from the UK and from the Northwest, uh, as some may be able to hear in my accent. I have a, a good Northern accent. Um, and, but I spent most of my working career as a physiotherapist down in London, um, where I worked across lots of different, um, uh, contexts, clinical contexts, hospitals, private practice, GP centers, um, and I was very lucky to work with a wonderful team at St. Thomas's who are the pain team there and develop and delivering their pain management program and supporting the medical side of that team, which was a great experience, which is where I learned acceptance and commitment therapy. And, um, and I also did my master's there uh, where I was introduced to some just excellent clinicians and thinkers and especially, you know, someone who I always give credit to is obviously Professor Mick Thacker, who had a massive impact on how I understand my role, healthcare, um, the importance of philosophy, ethics, critical thinking. Um, and he just continues to have a big uh, influence over how I think about the world today. Um, so I guess uh, that's a little bit about me. I um, uh, work primarily with people who experience complex chronic pain, usually associated with some quite uh, gnarly uh, experiences in the past and um, 
um, comorbidity of mental health um, experiences. Um, and uh, yeah, I also teach people um, about acceptance and commitment therapy and support people to integrate it in their own way into their uh, with their practice. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I guess I also uh, really, really feel quite passionately that we as clinicians need to keep dedicating to um, some time every week to reading and staying up to date. So I run with my friend Christine Pedridas. We run Pain Geeks, which is a, basically just a massive journal club of pain geeks. And um, so that's a little bit about me and what I do and who I am and where I am in the world. <laughs> Amazing. So many hats. Else. As well. Have I missed anything? <laughs> yeah. And uh, owner of a young cat, I've heard. So yeah so little Beatrice appear on the screen in front of me yeah um, so if you hear uh, any loud crashes or bumps <laughs> or running around in the background it's our nine-month-old cat who is uh, very excitable um at the moment so yeah <laughs> and you touched on how you help clinicians and you've helped me with clinical coaching over the past year and i was curious with the the terminology and if correct me where I'm wrong, I, I believe you may have changed your terminology and I'm still reflecting on whether I should change my own kind of terminology of, of helping other clinicians, whether that's coaching, supervision or mentoring. So how would you kind of differentiate those terms? And I imagine there's some blend within those three and in particular for the clinicians who maybe have had negative experiences with mentoring in the past I think this would be helpful yeah. to dive into yeah I think I mean god I could speak about this just for an hour right the the complexity of those terminologies you know the, and I, I guess this is why I never stray too far away from the sort of psychological theory of relational frame theory which underpins act you know words are such an important part not just of how we express ourselves but it, they also help us construct our reality our sense of reality and our experiences and so you know when we're thinking about what does a word mean it's not just what does it mean out there in the world but what does it mean to me and what does it mean in our relationship and do we have the same meaning and i i guess you know part of my struggle with you know, over the over the years of just growing up and developing in the world is is you know language is such a difficult thing to share actually, uh, because it's so deeply personal and also so massively public, and so these terminologies. I love that you've asked this question because you know I spent a lot of time thinking about this and um, and probably getting it wrong and practicing and exploring and experimenting and seeing what other people think and. Um, yeah, I definitely came down on the word coaching as something that I think is a, an important way of uh, forming your relationship. It sort of creates a different starting point that I that I value that I think is in, is interesting. Um, but what is the difference between these words? I think you know if I speak to my coaching friends who've been through official coaching training, they they seem to have a more more solid definition of these differences you know 
coaching means you know we're really working with the individual's skill set we're not trying to add or change we're trying to look at what's their values what are they moving towards and we're sort of supporting them on the journey we're not really we're not really part of the journey we're we're supporting them on their way um and then consultancy is a much more directed approach so you're almost helping to solve the problems um and you might put in place schedules or frameworks and things like that um, and I guess supervision is a more formal approach. So supervision, what you're saying is, I know how to guide you to what you want to, to being what you want to be. Um, and in clinical supervision, it's quite a responsible role because you're actually supporting people in how they practice and you're kind of keeping them inside the scope. You know, so you might sometimes have to say, I think that's outside of your scope or, you know, you, you, you might have to have these boundaries around what people are doing and you're really trying to um, feed into safe, um, effective and, um, yeah, I guess uh, evidence informed practice. That's how I understand these things. And so it's, it's, it's where do you position yourself geographically in the relationship and um in this other person's journey and i guess um the way that i run my clinical coaching is i think sometimes i'm a little bit of everything um i notice with some clients that we really need to start in a more supervisory position um, because actually what we need to do is contain the practice a little bit um, bring people back down into their scope and their evidence and acknowledging what their skill set is um, being really clear about which patients are, are you working with um, how are you formulating how are you um, uh, scaffolding your assessment process, your referral process, your uh, differential diagnosis work. And so we're really sticking very closely to what you need as a clinician um, to practice safely and effectively for your uh, within your context and your client group. And then there's this, there's this other role that I have, which I think is probably more like coaching. Um, when people come to me and they're like, I just don't like my job anymore. I don't know why I do what I do. I don't know. I, I don't have that feeling that I want to go into work anymore. I'm, I'm feeling burnt out. I'm feeling emotionally numb. I can't keep, keep track of everything. Um, and in some cases, we're really catching people just at the point before they jack it all in, basically, and do something else. Um, and what's beautiful about that is that we get to sort of say, well, look, you know, you, you know, what do you want out of this next period in your life and bring people back to their values. And, and often it's about supporting people to, you know, manage their boundaries and recommit to their passion and, and their why. Um, and then we start to redesign and rebuild um, how they how they how they understand and foresee their practice trajectory, you know, because the thing with the thing with um being a clinician is you're kind of taught like you're taught sort of how to do it in a very basic way at undergraduate level then you qualify and then you're out there in the big world and there really isn't anyone telling you how to do it after that um and sometimes people can start to feel a little bit lost like they're dissolving in the massiveness of this you know like there's you know they don't quite know what's their particular voice or their particular approach um and the beautiful thing about being qualified and being registered 
is now you get to figure out, well, how do I want to do this for the rest of my life? You know, what, what career do I want to build out of this? What practice do I want to nurture? Which group of people do I want to work with? Uh, where are my skills that naturally there, you know, rather than the ones I have to work on? Um, what am I drawn to? Um, and a lot of the time it's about giving permission to people to be drawn to that and to embrace that and to enjoy that because actually this is something you work is supposed to be something you're proud of, especially as a public, if you're working in public service like healthcare, you know, we get to be really proud of what we do because what we do is really important to the fundamental structure of the society and community that we find ourselves within. And right now with climate crisis, with all the conflict zones, with the economic crash, with you know, all the things that we're experiencing around us right now, what we do matters um, and it's important that we feel pride in that and that can sometimes be hard to find yeah and we need yeah. that guidance and that support that we may not often have imagine we're, we're not often um, even having some of these discussions on our deeper values and the kind of clinician that we want to be at university at least from what i've personally experienced and what i've seen and heard with a lot of clinicians and so we need that extra bit of of help especially when starting out as to what kind of practice that we want to build. And even knowing that that's an option, that we have that autonomy to have a bit of flexibility and have a bit of the authenticity within um, maybe some uh, workplace systems where there is not, not enough space for us to be yeah. ourselves. Right. And this is such a hangover from the industrial revolution. You know, this idea that we're just worker bots, you know, but like, you know, there is a huge amount of work to do. I'm not in any way denying that there's a huge amount of work. You know, healthcare professionals, we're never going to struggle for patients because we've got large communities um, all being worked to a very, very high level. Um, we've got increasing levels of disability. We've got increasing levels of financial insecurity, housing insecurity, food insecurity, all of these things which contribute you know, to the risk of ill health, which we all know about because we're evidence-informed clinicians. We know that this is, we know the trend that we're in, right? Um, so, so there is a lot to do. Um, but the answer might not be that we all look the same and we're all interchangeable and we're all replaceable and we're all expendable. That might not be the answer. The answer might be that we are actually all unique. We do all have our individual strengths and weaknesses. You know, there are there are patient groups that I know I can't work well with, not because I'm a bad person, but because my relational skills, my social skills, my personal history all interact with how I am in that particular patient group. Um, and so actually for me to play to my strengths would help me to stay in my job in a more sustainable way, which would help me to keep doing what I do in the little space that I occupy uh, within the healthcare service and within my community. And, and if we're all doing that, then maybe that, that might help us to have a more efficient and uh, sustainable system of care. Yeah. yeah that, so, um music to my ears to just even have this discussion because I know that this would be a real reflection point for a lot of us maybe we've um, been taught that we should practice a certain way or there's rigid rules in who we are and our role and maybe having that guidance and some role models to help guide and see the different possibilities within absolutely within our scope of practice and within our 
professional boundaries, um, to know that there is a bit of flexibility within essentially who we are as clinicians. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that we do make a social contract with the community to say that we will be evidence informed, that we will, you know, uh, uh, subscribe to a certain morality, a certain ethics, uh, largely based on the human rights. So, you know, we, we need to operate within that framework. Um, but how that looks, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a very different question, you know, and um, part of the thing that I know I've talked previously about how you know, uniforms are a big part of what limits our ability to be creative because it's saying to us from the straight straight away, you know, you are not an individual in this in this system. Um, when of course we absolutely are, you know, what you what's going on at home, you know, you can't separate yourself from that. You you're not one moment a human being and then the next moment a clinician. You're always a human being and sometimes you're a clinician at the same time, you know? And so we need to be able to authentically say, hey, right now I'm going through this thing and this is making it harder, or hey, right now I'm in a really great place or whatever it is, and and be able to bring that and have, you know, solid um, self-knowledge and I guess bravely be able to put boundaries around that, you know, and one of the ways that we might do that is by sort of using techniques like grounding or uh, staying in the moment and so that we can keep recommitting to the person in front of us. And this is where psychology and psychotherapy is really essential for clinicians. Um, You know, if you're going through something at home, if you're going through grief because you're human and because we have families, you know, and then you're going into, um, into a a clinical relationship with somebody who might be very distressed, who may also have a story of grief. We have to be able to say, oh, hang on a minute. This is my grief. This is behind my boundary. That's your grief. And in this moment, I'm committing to supporting you in your grief whilst holding my grief personal and making sure I have time and space after this session to process the fact that as a grieving person, I bore witness to somebody else's grief. Yeah. Now, when we're asking clinicians to do this safely, we need to be able to have that humane moment where people are allowed to go and take 10 minutes just to be like, hang on a minute, that just brought me very close to my own pain. And I'm going to just step away from it for a second so I can show up for the next person because that's my job. Yeah. And with that job comes the responsibility of being able to handle my own stuff. Some essential skills that I feel psychologists have a bit of a head start in general, but I could be very wrong depending on the level of training that they have. But the idea of clinical supervision being mandatory comes to mind Mm -hmm. within these kind of, I guess, contexts, clinical contexts. I think that there's a lot of uh, opportunity for clinicians, more of the physical therapies to start. Maybe if that means going to therapy and destigmatizing mental health, that's also a helpful first step. Um, looking at clinical coaching and clinical supervision as a, as a strength, as a necessity, as a need um, for mm-hmm. clinicians who work with humans, who deal with emotions. <laughs> I think that this is a, a, almost a cultural change. It goes into the... Yeah 
some scary territory for a lot of clinicians when starting to um, acknowledge, recognize, and feel the our own humanity as well as the humanity of of, of patients. Uh, then not just body parts; they've got a story yeah. and a history. So I think we we need this time and these contexts for clinical coaching and supervision to, like you said, feel our own. Um, what comes up for us, have safe spaces to express, have the skills to weather ground, come back to the present and notice what might be coming up for us so that kind of doesn't interfere with the the care of a, the patient in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I would love to, I would love, I would, my, the ego in me would love to be like, yeah, look at all this great new stuff that we're doing. None of this is new, right? This is not a new way of thinking about how people are you know we've we've had the last few hundred years under the capital under the thumb of capitalism which has reduced human beings to tools objects machines machinery within a larger system of production right and you know that has had massive pros but massive massive cons and come at a huge cost of the average working person who has now the very difficult job of unpicking the shame that we've been brought up with, which has repressed or oppressed us from accepting and acknowledging that we are human with feelings, that we that lives are messy, that you know, you know, as a as a as a as a newly single mom of two children, I cannot work as if I don't have children. And I cannot parent as if I don't need to work, right? I have to be able to incorporate these things together because they are both very present all the time. You know, in order to do this podcast, I had to speak to a neighbor so that she would look after my children so that I could come here and be present for this. So, you know, there's no separation. In order to do my job, I have to organize my life around that. In order to be a mother, I have to organize my work around that. So these things have to have a relationship. They have to be they have to be uh, conjoined. Um, that's not the right word, but I can't think of another one. Um, and you know, when we look to sort of indigenous models of society and community, if we look just a little bit historically beyond the sort of like capitalist industrial revolution, you know, colonization, if we go back and give actual credit to the people whose communities, you know, the Western European model of commerce and trade and um you know development that we're all benefiting from now if we look back to those communities that we we really had a very big hand in destroying and now what we see is that we're borrowing from those philosophies and pretending that they're ours and that they're new and they're not you know i mean even if we think about um you know the biopsychosocial model is you know this is not this is not something that white western europeans invented we've just realized we got it wrong and now we're we're rebuilding our humanity and hopefully learning some very big lessons from the fortunately the indigenous communities who are still around us um, who have survived the western european colonization exper experiment i guess mm. um and, you know, give credit to the fact that, you know, indigenous knowledge is, has massively influenced my practice. Um, and I hope to be able to continue to learn from that. And, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy, the, the, psych, the psychotherapy, you know, borrows a lot 
from Buddhism, Zenism, you know, like these different ancient models of, you know, acceptance and understanding that struggle is a part of the human experience and to push that away increases the struggle. Um, and yeah. I think these are the things that, you know, I'm nowhere near skilled enough to advocate for those communities or those, those, um, that wisdom and that knowledge. Um, but I think we have to keep trying to get better at it. Yeah. Yeah. And touching on, on ACT, if there's an, I guess, a new clinician that doesn't know what acceptance and commitment therapy is as a, I guess, a simplified explanation of, of what it is, and then also be curious to hear about your, how you uncovered, discovered your values or the kind of person that you want to be. I know I've, I've done a lot of work with you to un uncover kind of my deeper why and, and, and where that came from. So I'm keen what, what your journey was. Yeah. So, I mean, acceptance and commitment therapy is, it's just a modern version of cognitive and behavioral theory, a, an approach to helping people, you know, make positive change in their life. Right. So it's often called third wave CBT. So, you know, psychology is so much bigger than physio. I mean, I come from the physiotherapy perspective, but physical therapy, physical rehab is so small, really, compared to psychology and psychiatry and the study of the mind. And because that comes out of philosophy, right? So it's, it's impossibly big, really. Um, what we do is very modern and it's still very in its early phase of development. We don't really know what our identity is, what our principles are still we're still deciding on that but acceptance and commitment therapy is this third wave cognitive and behavioral approach um and what it's really saying is if we stop for a moment and we're present in this moment if we're if we're aware of this moment if we're open to what is in this moment all of it the bad stuff the painful stuff the joyful stuff the exciting stuff the scary stuff, if we're open to having all of that and we've become aware of ourselves and how we respond, how we want to behave, what are the habits, rules, um, ways that we uh, deal with some of those things that are in our, the sort of the wide spectrum of human capacity for experience. If we're aware of the, some of the rules and decisions that we make and some of the coping strategies. Um, we might be able to start asking questions about whether they're helping us to achieve the overall goal that we have for our lives, uh, the overall way that we want to live our lives, the overall kind of person that we want to be in the world. Um, and if we can be aware of those things, if we can ask those questions, then maybe there is the space for us to do things differently if we decide it's not helping us, if we decide it's not actually in line with this overall way of how we wanna be in the world. So then we can choose to engage in the world differently. And these are the kind of three pillars of ACT, right? Open, aware, engaged, yeah? But that's what we're saying, saying denying or rejecting or dismissing or not wanting to have the negative aspects of life means that we can't authentically reflect on all of the options that we have because we're closing those bits of ourselves down and an act is simply saying well can we be more open to that and when we're more open to that what options do we have 
And when we look at all of our options, how do we choose to engage in the world and with the people that are around us? Because at the end of the day, that's what helps us find pride in who we are, contentment in the world. And, you know, this feeling of I lived a good life. Yeah. Which I think we're all looking for. Yeah. So in a nutshell, that's act. <laughs> yeah. The uh, idea of becoming aware and noticing maybe some invisible rules and rigid kind of ways or thought processes that we may have held on for a very, very long time before we have the work to recognize them and, and pick them up and see how they might be influencing the, the here and now. Um, I think that's yeah. such a, a vital skill. Um, mindfulness is the, the term that a lot of people will use, but maybe that's been kind of misconstrued in some ways. So I think noticing and being aware uh, is probably a better way of explaining that initial process um, and, and having the skills and the tool sets to then be able to, as you said, have the space to decide on the options from there. Much yeah. easier said than done uh, from personal experience. <laughs> yeah, of course, <laughs> because sometimes, you know, using a well-practiced coping strategy, even though it doesn't actually help us in the long run, can take less energy in the short term. So it feels like it's, it relieves us in the short term. And the example that I give is, you know, <laughs> one of the things I struggle with is my, you know, obviously I'm a parent, my kids drive me just, you know, up the wall sometimes, right? And um, you know, the, the immediate sort of, I need to get this out of me and shout at my kids. That is, that urge is so, strong right such a well-practiced experience not proud of it there are definitely moments where i'm not proud of my parenting and i have to really step back and reflect and use my own practice to think okay i don't want to do that that way if this comes up again i don't want to do that again um but you know also catching that moment where you're like oh i really want to let this out and just you know dropping back a bit and be like no 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 that's not how I want a parent. That's not how I want my kids to look back on this part of their life and think mummy shouted a lot, you know? That's not in my values. That's not my, that's not my trajectory. That's not what I choose for myself if I had all the choices. Oh, and hey, by the way, I do have all the choices because I'm in charge of my behavior. So now I can do what settles me down so I can talk to my kids in a different way. So the immediate feeling to release the immediate feeling that is the that is the well-practiced coping strategy that's the thing that feels better in the moment but it conflicts with who i am in the long term so then afterwards i feel awful about it and then i feel frightened of getting there again so i might be less inclined to hold a boundary with my kids that is necessary because i'm frightened that we're going to have conflict and then i'm going to shout at them because i don't know how to regulate my own emotion yeah so it's much better for me to think, okay, and the boundary is necessary. They're children. My job is to help them develop into, you know, successful, kind, compassionate, you know, philosophical, curious kids um, that have all the emotions. So they're, they have more, more space to have their anger, but it's important that I can control mine. Yeah. So like the urge that's the thing we're trying to get in front of the urge to just jump in and behave without thinking pre-reflectively we're trying to get in front of that and say hang on a minute if you had a choice here would you choose that way or would you choose a different way 
and every moment we open up every every little every every sort of like millimeter of space in time which if we think about time as a space thing but if we every millimeter of time space that we open up before that urge to act we give ourselves we give ourselves more opportunity to choose how we act um and so acceptance and commitment therapy essentially is trying to build that skill of hang on a minute there is something building here here's the urge what's the space between and how do i choose something different if that's what i want to do or if i choose to behave like that good go for it own it that's your choice and all of the consequences that come with it are also you choosing those as well yeah because we're grown-ups we're not we're not unskilled in the world we're highly skilled in the world we have a very good understanding of what is likely to happen if we behave in a certain way if we think about it if we stop and just take that moment before we act to ask to to say do what do i choose to engage in the world in that way so many parallels to so many different contexts beyond even clinical practice with the way that we treat ourselves and other people and the world. I'm thinking online spaces. I'm thinking with colleagues, discussions, yeah. the heated yeah. debates that we can have, the frustration or the, I would call them almost triggers, like the activation that we feel when maybe something doesn't go to plan with, yeah. with patients. And it's that, that kind of uh, our own emotional response, that human response being able yeah. to notice that and have that space to then choose how we respond to our own reaction. Yeah. And ACT also allows us to go even further than that, right? Because that's quite superficial work, I would say. That's the first, that's the low hanging fruit. That's the, I can feel this big emotion. There's all this stuff coming up. I can lay, like, we can label it. We can look at the options. ACT asks us to think, why? Why do I act like that? What need is not being met in other ways? What am I missing? Where in my, in my design of my life and my interaction with the world, have I missed something important to me? And I'm, am I feeling the loss of that? Yeah. So the whole framework of ACT is such a, is such a beautifully complex framework. It allows us to ask not only about the action stuff, the observable action, but also the entirety of the human behaviors and that includes cognitions and thoughts and emotions and feelings and also this kind of like context you know a big part of act is looking at the context of where this is coming from as well um and so so i think act is such a useful wide complex way of understanding how humans relate to the world and each other themselves and express themselves that it gives us so much scope to support people when they're experiencing struggle. Um, and that's why I think ACT can be really, really helpful. And of course, you can you can simplify it, open, aware, engaged, which is beautiful and helpful. But if you want to do it well, you, you need to invest in it. You need to try and understand it, not just in a book, not just reading it, you know, but you need to embody it. You need to feel what it's like to deny yourself that urge release, you know, to surf that need for, you know, the, the let go, the, uh, the, to satisfy that growing urge, right? 
it reminds me of when I, I think initially came to you, I was uh, inquiring on how to use ACT. And I think I had that yeah. kind of tool-based response. I'm not sure if you, if you can recall, but I think that that process uh, was a, took a long time. And I think it's, a, it's still an ongoing journey for myself. And one of the ways that you helped me was, like you just said, exploring where my own responses and my own care came from. And hence discovering, oh, this is really important to me. And this makes sense. This is the kind of direction that I want to go, or this is why I care so much. And that was kind of my work with, with values that I still appreciate to this day. So I'm curious if you don't mind sharing with, um, maybe this might touch on some of the social justice kind of um, yeah. lens that you work in so well with, with all of your work. Um, but where, where did, how did you find out about your, your values um, as a as a clinician, as a human, what was yeah, that like? um, it's interesting. So I think when I first started thinking about values, I think I did think, what are my values as a clinician, right? And um, and that got me so far. You know, that was a great first step. It helped me to kind of develop a kind of uh, shape that I could slip into when I moved into clinic, into the clinic, which was helpful, you know, very helpful. Um, as I started to deepen my work and, you know, deepen my knowledge of, of ACT and where it came from, you know, cause of course ACT is not a thing that was just invented. It, it's evolved over time, just like CBT, you know, CBT wasn't invented. It was, you know, evolved over time and it it brings together behaviorism so skinner's behaviorism with uh, freudian psychoanalysis it, it you know if you really go back to the origins of cbt cognitive and behavioral therapy the cognitive bit draws from psychoanalysis and the behavioral bit draws from this skinnerian approach to you know we move around the world based on um what rewards we get and what brings us pain what 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 do we move what do we want to move into what do we move away from you know how do we make these choices to act and that evolved again behavior not just being something that we outwardly do that's observable it's also something we do on the inside and then you know it just it's evolving and where did that come from well it came from observation you know so you know pre-1900s the 1800s you had medics philosophers thinkers observing how people move around the world how they make decisions you go back even further into philosophy you know this is something that is so based on human it's so it's so grounded in human evolution as well and evolution of thinking um it's just you know it, it's fantastic to be able to access these theories and these philosophies in the practice of physio or in the practice of physical therapy or body work um, exercise rehab exercise physiology you know where actually this new model has kind of said we're only interested in the structure we're only interested in the mechanics of it and now you know what we've done that for what maybe a hundred years and we're already like oh actually we can't go much further into that without incorporating the mind and i think that is such a, a great thing for our our professions because we've got more knowledge about the structure we've got more knowledge about the tissues about the philosophies about the processes mechanisms if you want to call them that um 
but they don't mean anything without the mind. The mind is the meaning bit, right? The human, how the human relates, how the human makes sense of, you know, how the human understands themselves in relation to others. That's, that's what makes this special, you know, and, and we get to work on the intersection of that. And I think you know, without that knowledge, it's kind of flat. Of course, we're all unsatisfied. Of course, as clinicians, we're all struggling to know, you know, what's the point of it all? Because we're forgetting that the meaning bit is the bit that makes our job special. Um, so, yeah, so I think I really enjoyed and still enjoy the opportunity to keep understanding and exploring and listening to other people's theories about, you know, how humans are in the world, why they are in the world, what this thing called pain is, you know, and it, it helps me to understand that, you know, who I am in clinic is just who I am. And so who am I? What are my values? Well, to do that, I have to accept that my life began before I qualified before I became an adult, right? Before I got that, like, oh, now you're a grown up, you've got a clinical license or you've done your degree, you know? But actually my life it started way before that, before I even went into university, I already had 19 years of experience, which was not for nothing, you know? I learned a huge amount about the world and probably when I really think about it, the values I live by now are something that I developed probably when I was about seven or eight, you know, especially when I look at my kids, I can see their sense of morality, their sense of, their sense of, you know, how they understand that it's already there. And I can, you can already see the kind of rules that they're going to start living by and the way they're going to start constructing their reality and what they're going to move towards. So then I just started thinking, well, what are my values? Um, and, you know, very quickly realize, you know, I find honesty the most, one of the most important things. It's one of the most important qualities I look for. Honesty doesn't mean that I agree, doesn't mean that we have the same level of knowledge, doesn't mean that we think the same way, doesn't mean we identify the same way. It just means that you are showing up honestly and I am showing up honestly. And we are brave enough to acknowledge where there is a difference and a gap um, and kind enough to be respectful and gentle with each other knowing that, you know, there's, there's 8 billion different perspectives on this world. How amazing is that? Wow. <laughs> you know? I have no words to, um, reflect back that amazing reflection and the, the, the deep sense of going beyond just the kind of, I guess the clinical role into the human and into ourselves even just acknowledging that we were humans before our university degree and we're so much more than our kind of clinician identity, which we can still be very proud of and, and yeah. hold on to whilst yeah. uh, exploring and, and looking beyond, I think, is, is the word that comes to mind. Yeah, looking beyond doesn't necessarily mean looking forwards, right? I, and I could talk to you for hours, Laura. I'm very mindful of the time. I wanted to go into common mistakes with ACT. Yeah. And I think we, we've kind of touched on like using it as a kind of tool without doing that deeper work and embodying yeah. ACT. 
which takes a process and takes time and, and practice and making mistakes and getting feedback. And I think that's mm-hmm. um, important for, for clinicians, I feel, to, to prepare for, um, that it's not just another technique to do onto patients. What, what would you say from, from experience with coaching clinicians, biggest mistakes? Yeah. I think there are, I mean, I don't think there are mistakes, right? So mistakes is an, is an interesting word. It means that you get something wrong, right? You've, you've, you've done something wrong. Um, and the way that we might, if we think of mistakes as being invaluable, like it's a loss of time or a waste or whatever, then I think that's a, a an unhelp for me, that's an unhelpful way of thinking about that word. Like mistakes are so valuable they're so important, right? Like I look back and think, where were the time, where were the moments in my journey with ACT? Um, Not only just with ACT, because I think that's almost identifying too closely with a framework, right? But like, where are the places where I think I went down one particular path that taught me something, but now I don't choose to go down that path in the same way anymore, right? So, like, I think what you're saying, this idea that it's it's something that we do to others. It's this kind of, it's a tool we use. I think that is, if somebody, I don't know if somebody, if somebody had said to me when I was first learning this, hey, Laura, you know, be careful not to think of act like a tool and, and embody it. W- would I have been able to update just off that word? Or would I have still had to go down the process of thinking of act as a tool? Um, probably the latter, you know, because I think learning is an embodied experience. You you usually have to find that it doesn't work for you in order for you to change it. Um, but I think it can be helpful if we sow that seed very early, right? So as physiotherapists, as people working within the physical health realm, this idea that we're working with the body in isolation from the mind, um, we've all kind of been trained to think of ourselves as using tools or a process or approaches to fix people, right. To make people better. That, um, we aren't necessarily the therapeutic, uh, the therapy, we're not, we're not part of the therapy. We're doing the therapy. Right. And I think learning that that is not true (laughs) is a hard lesson. But it's really essential if you want to be able to have good, close working relationships with the people who choose to collaborate with you. So patients and clients, Um, if you want to be able to be flexible and creative, if you want to be more about what is important to them, then have this kind of like um, uh, hierarchical paternalistic relationship I tell you how to get better I tell you what's wrong with you and I tell you how to get better if you want to have a different relationship if you want to have a more therapeutic uh, relationship where you're equal and you're both working together and you're collaborating you probably need to get to the point where you understand act is not something you do to people it's a way of holding the space and understanding how you as a human being struggle (laughs) And so you can have more compassion and, you know, also be able to come up with useful and helpful ways to support the other person with their struggle, because in any other moment, it could be you on the other side of that clinical relationship. Yeah. So, so it's like, what we're saying is 
this is not something you know if we only think of act as something we do to people you're going to have a very superficial experience with it and probably you're going to feel like it doesn't work and you're going to be frustrated and the patient is also going to say things like i tried act and it doesn't work for me you know because what's happening is it's becoming something i use every now and then when i think i need it like a tool like you use a screwdriver for screws and you use a hammer for nails um this is not so specific um so so i think that's one of the biggest one of the biggest areas i think where people struggle with act and it also leads people to fall into the next trap which is what i call gatekeeping which patients do i use act for in which moments when do i start using act which bits of act do i start using um and i think this is this is another area where i have gone through a lot of development over the last 15 years of investing in understanding psychological theory and approaches as a physio um yeah it, it's not when and who it's it's all the time you know i'm con like i what i'm saying when i engage with act which is underpinned by the psychological theory of relational frame theory what i'm saying is this is how I think human beings generally move around the world and may, um, in a relational way with the world and other people within it and themselves. And, and this is how I think we struggle. And I work with people who are struggling, right? Everybody that comes into a clinic is struggling because, you know, what's the difference between the person staying at home and managing their own sprained ankle versus the person coming into a physio clinic? person staying at home is like, I think I've got this. I've done this before. I know what's going on. This is within the expected framework. This is kind of what I understand. This is, it makes sense to me that this is happening and I can make space for this. The point at which they transition into, I need help is this is no longer following those expectations. I can't make sense of this anymore. I don't believe I can do this by myself. I've lost agency within this experience and now I need support. That's struggle. Yeah. So we're always working with people who are struggling. So maybe an act helps me to understand a little bit and helps me to um, have a theory and a framework and a foundation to sort of frame struggle so I can support somebody within it. Framework, I think, is such a, a complex concept that needs to be, I think, practiced and, and gone through with with scaffolding uh, and with mm -hmm. some guidance and support and as you mentioned it takes yeah. takes time as well to, yeah. to get to that understanding um and I, I appreciate the way that you framed it as starting off maybe seeing it as a tool but then um, expanding on it um, and like all these other relational skills are also part of that journey I feel like we we don't just do yeah. the act we're part of the framework ourselves yeah and this comes with understanding complexity right like if we really want to i mean if we're really really honest you know pain is a impossibly complex experience for which we don't fully understand of which we don't fully understand all of the complexities nor do we understand how these complex things really relate to each other in order to bring forward this experience of pain right so we've got this impossibly complex phenomena this lived experience called pain and then on top of that i'm a human so i'm impossibly complex within itself working with another impossibly complex human being who may have been alive 
45 years before they walk into my clinic door, of which I have no knowledge. I've never met this person before, never had an interaction with them before. They have no idea who I am. They've never had an interaction with me. So we've got these incredibly complex bits of stuff, right? Phenomena, all coming together at once. And so the only thing I can really come down to is we're just humans working with humans with a really complex human experience, and we're probably going to get it wrong. So that means we're going to struggle. So being able to struggle well as a clinician is going to help you. And also supporting others to struggle well is going to help them. And so we've got to develop those skills where we don't panic when we feel distressed. We don't run away or push away or shame inadvertently, which we do quite often, I think. And I've been guilty. I am guilty of this all the time. I wish I wasn't, but, you know, I'm human. And, um, you know, so that we can keep supporting people to acknowledge that being human is difficult. Sometimes there are really scary things that happen to us and the world can feel very scary. And sometimes the world can feel very joyous and like everything is flowing and both of those are valid both of those are real neither one of them increases our value or decreases our value it's just what it is to be human and if we're lucky we get 85 years of that and let's just do that well embracing that complexity as well is such a such a journey with the context of private practice for pain care, for musculoskeletal pain care, we can zoom in or zoom out wherever you'd like. But if you were <laughs> to to have a bird's eye view from what you've come across, biggest problems for, say, for, for clinicians or for the entire kind of context of MSK pain practice and some possible solutions I wish there was one panacea and magic wand where everyone gets clinical supervision with Laura Rathbone, but that's my own (laughs) kind of hopes and dreams. But what would you say? I think when healthcare becomes a business model, that's where I check out. I'm not interested. That's not for me. Um, Healthcare cannot be a business model under my ethics. It has to be something else now that doesn't and when i say a business model i mean it in the conservative sense of you know driving profits and things like that so what i find sometimes tricky is private practice usually means a private clinic and when you have a private clinic now what you're saying is that the patients are going to bankroll everything that the clinic needs in order for this to work um which means that you either have to have high volume, which will lower quality, you or you have to underpay your clinicians, which will lower quality, or you have to work mostly with juniors because they will not ask for more pay, which might lower quality. Um, or you need to raise your rates, which means that it becomes a luxury. So these are the ethical problems that to be in private practice, I think you have to be dealing with regularly. Um, I much prefer independent practice. So I have been a public sector clinician for a long time. 
it definitely lies more within my ethical framework that healthcare is something that should be accessible to all, uh, paid by all of us, like the social, the, the sort of socialist system that we have in the UK, the NHS before obviously it got sold off, which it is being at the moment. Um, but independent practice means actually I just need enough for me to live. And that what that means is that I can be flexible with how I get um, remunerated for what I do. I can be more responsive to the people that, you know, do choose to work with me. I can think about my own, you know, you know, where am I in the month? Where am I in my quarter? What can I afford to give? What can I, what can, where do I have to have boundaries in order for me to be able to live comfortably? Um, that's something that I'm still working on as a, as a clinician that's moved out of the public service sector, the public sector in the UK and into the Netherlands, which is all insurance based. Um, but I think we need to be having these when we're working in the private sector, we do need to be having these ethical conversations. We need to have space to, you know, make decisions um, and sometimes tolerate what that might bring up in us, you know, sometimes we might have to be like, this is an uncomfortable decision, but I have to make it right now for X, Y, and Z. Fine. You know, you own your decisions, but I think it's very difficult. Um, when we start relying on heavy patient flow to maintain profits or even just clinics, you know, once you get too big, it's very difficult. Healthcare, when it's a business, is not a great business model, right? Because you're working with people who are vulnerable, who might not have steady income, who might have no income. Um, that's the very nature of being ill. That's what it does. It takes away your security. So if your business model relies on people being able to pay you, then I think you might be in the wrong business um, because health care usually is working with people who are struggling with their own security so we have to think about that we need to rethink it the model needs to be uh, reflected upon with within every individual context and this might vary yeah. across countries and as you mentioned yeah. where, where the funding is coming from yeah and but how you fund yeah if you think about you know i mean <laughs> It, you know, we think about signing up to being a member of something, you know, you're not saying I'm going to use it all the time, but you're saying I'm going to pay a membership to keep it running so that when I do want to use it, it's available like a gym. Yeah. You know, obviously gyms have high profit margins, right? But maybe there is, maybe there is this new way of doing things that we might be moving into. I don't know. I, I don't have these answers. I'm not a business mind. I'm a clinician. Um, but I think when we're, when we're, when we're starting to ask for money, rightly so many of us feel uncomfortable. And I think that is a good sign for us to have those hard ethical conversations with ourselves, not so that we don't do it, but so that when we do it, we're doing it in an intentional way. Um, I think that's important. Um, and I think you touched on it before, you know, psychologists have this sort of in a way you might see it as a pro some they might see it as a con right so there's pros and cons to everything but they have this sort of requirement to have supervision um which obviously they have to pay for so this is something that 
you know, it's certainly in physiotherapy, we don't have a requirement to do it. So then the idea of paying for it also feels very uncomfortable. There's a lot of, there's some pushback and some resistance to that. Um, but the reason, you know, one of the benefits of choosing your supervisor or your coach or your mentor or whatever you, you, you're choosing for in that moment is that you get to develop a long-term relationship with somebody whose practice you respect somebody who's somebody whose practice you want to move closer towards or somebody who uh, has a way of being in the world that you think will benefit you in some way and you get to have this long-term relationship so you know I have relationships with coaches and mentors that spans years and I'll be like hey I'm struggling with this patient and they'll say yeah well we know you know can we go you know and they'll help me understand why I'm struggling because they understand me so much more. And so they're able to support me to see where the struggle is. Not tell me what I'm doing wrong. Yeah, I'm, that's not helpful. I'm not, a chi- I'm not a child with no knowledge. I'm a, an autonomous, educated, experienced adult, skilled adult in the world. I have all of the skills to figure this out. I just need sometimes the space or support or the nudging to put those things into place so I can find the solution that works for me. And I think this is the kind of relationship that I hope to develop with the clinicians that choose to work with me because I've had really bad supervision in the past, you know, that really was more management than supervision. It was more micromanagement than supervision. It was, you know, a way of controlling and limiting what I do in my practice. Um, as opposed to growing and expanding what I do in my practice. And um, I think knowing and being able to say, oh, hang on a minute, the relationship I have with my supervisor right now, this isn't helping me. And then being brave enough to step into something that might help you, but is different. That's something that I think uh, MSK clinicians both in private and public sector could benefit from that realization that maybe the the relationship that you have with a supervisor a senior clinician uh, a mentor a coach may not be actually working for you or or helping you develop and grow into the the person that you want to be the clinician that you want to be i think that's that's the first step i think so often we get into a, a space where there is no other option or we don't maybe see another option yeah. So I think that's really important. Exactly. So it comes back to sort of just stepping back and being like, what options are there? Because, you know, you've got so many, <laughs> right? As a as a as an autonomous, independent adult with agency in the world, right? You have what you need to find what what you next need, right? You have all of the skills, you have the capacity to think and question and problem solve and philosophize and reflect and ask for help and, you know, all of that stuff. And that can help you figure out what you need next. The, the next question is, it, you know, it can feel scary. So it might require you to be brave whilst also compassionately remembering that the people who are in your system right now support system are doing the best they can with what they have yeah so it's not about saying you've got it wrong that person is a bad person or that doesn't help or that it's about just saying hey look that person is doing the best they can over there and 
it helps me this much, but in order for me to get what I need, I might need to go over there. And obviously you can't see this, but I've pointed in two different directions. <laughs> so, so, and you know, that's quite a scary thing um, because we're quite used to being institutionalized. You know, we go from school, then we go to university, then we go into the institution of healthcare, which is paternalistic, it's hierarchical. You know, you have to make your way up. You get told what to do until you start telling other people what to do, right? And you're usually still being told how to tell other people what to do. That's the sort of the system. But if we embrace independence of thought, which requires us to be critical in our thinking and wide in our information gathering, if we embrace that, we might realize that we have a lot more choices in how we express and embody our practice in the world because you probably only get to do this for 40 years, right? Which might feel like forever, but you know, I'm 40, I'm halfway through. I've got another 20 years left and I, I wish and hope that there's more because I do just love what I do. But it's, it's you know, it's not like your life begins after, you know, you're doing it now you're living it right now you are you you are the clinician you know this is your life how do you want to be in the world in which sometimes you are a clinician yeah these are ideas are sparking a million thoughts but i wanted to end on the topic of social justice and how our work intersects with it uh, i guess the from my journey it was so outside of my realm of thinking of whether that is um, advocating for patients' needs or in the realm of social work, kind of like initially ACT in my mind was in the realm of psychology work. So how does the work that we do as, as physical therapists uh, intersect with ideas of social justice and how does pain care intersect with that too? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I guess I can only say how I got here. So I guess before I became a clinician, I was interested in the world. So I trained as a journalist, I was interested in international conflict. That was something that I explored a lot. Um, and at the same time was my mom was a nurse who supported, um, she was worked in A&E and she worked in pediatrics. So she would and she did a degree when I was younger in health prevention, in health promotion, health prevention, illness prevention, health promotion. Um, and that takes on a lot of social models, health promotion, this kind of preventative way of saying, well, look, you know, if we support people um, in their whole life, does that prevent some of these illnesses? And of course, that takes us back to the manifesto of the NHS. So. Bevan's original model, this idea that, you know, when they first developed the NHS, they thought that it wouldn't be needed after a few years. They, they foresaw that the health of the individual would rise so high because of access and health promotion and regular care that we wouldn't need as much. In fact, we would be able to fund other things from the NHS, from the tax that we were using, the national insurance tax, right? 
The problem, of course, is that Bevan's idea of the NHS actually never did come into fruition. It never did become what it was intended to be, which was a socialist, um, a socialist model that was freely accessible to all people at the point of need and that the value and the level of care would be equal across all people. So you could be the Queen of England and go into the NHS hospital and you would receive the same level of care as, you know, uh, Sandra from down the road who's a, who is uh, below the poverty line and unable to read. You know, it wouldn't matter who you were. You would have the same level of care, of course. We all know England is still a feudalist society. That is not what has happened. And of course, there are people who can pay for a lot more and they do. Um, and actually the whole social system just didn't develop at the same time. So we still continue to have uh, real poverty in the UK. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so actually to be a healthcare worker in the UK under the NHS system, you're working in a social justice model that the whole point of it was to be a social justice model. It was to, it was to promote health access, health justice, um, and to be in, in, to intersect with things like educational justice and housing justice. This was all supposed to be working at the same time in the, in the context and the era within which it was developed and modeled. So like for me, what I, as I understood more the history and the context of healthcare. So I got more interested in, well, what, where did we come from? I started to understand this sort of social model that really underpinned my job, like how I got my job. Like I had my degree funded by the NHS, you know? So that was the other side of the NHS is that it, it was supposed to, it funds the next generation of healthcare workers. Of course, it's not doing that anymore. Right. So physiotherapists in the UK coming out with masses amount of debt, just like other places in the world, not as much, but, you know, still it's there. And, and so the whole model has crumbled. It's never really got to be what it needed to be. But we're based on a social justice model. And, um, and when we think about the biopsychosocial model, you know, the social bit requires us to understand you know, identity politics, not to play identity politics, but to understand that these things exist, that, you know, um, privilege exists, that, you know, discrimination exists. And a lot of these things are based on, you know, ignorant judgments that are embedded within our system. Um, you know, and if we're thinking about pain, you know, the social determinants of health, the social risks of pain, you know, we just talk about it. Like, it's just enough to say it, but it's not. This is, you know, these are, these are very real experiences that both the clinicians, when they're honest with themselves and the patients who are experiencing, oh, we're experiencing all of this stuff, you know? And, um, and so if we don't, you know, when we become clinicians, we're talking about the health and care of our community not just the health and care of the individual you know it's it's got to mean both it's got to be you know in, small to the individual and big to the community um and so i guess that's where i think as clinicians to have some understanding 
of the sort of social theory and the experience of people in society around you is important. And, uh, you know, let's just start with the human rights, you know, <laughs> let's just start there because you're most of your teaching and your portfolios and how you've registered with your registry, registry, registration body for me, it's the HCPC or the BIC in the Netherlands. That's all based on, you know, safeguarding people's human rights. We're agreeing to that. We're saying that we will not be discriminative in our practice. We're also agreeing to say that we will be ethical in our practice, that we will be evidence-based so that we can do no harm. If, we, if we're not even advocating for that in our own practice with our patients, we've, we've made, there's a problem, yeah? But it's not enough to only advocate for that within your own within your own practice with your own patients because we're also dealing with our patients in society yeah and so it's important that we are involved in the social justice movements around us um because that shows in an in in a in a very active way that we in, that we are engaging with those social contracts, you know, that we've made with society, that we really believe in what we practice, not just, you know, because we have to say, I work biopsychosocially, but because we really embody that and want to have an equal and equitous and inclusive society for all people, not just for, you know, the privileged few more than just the individual individualism, I guess, lens that we might view interventions or treatments, uh, but looking at the wider society and how our work can impact and influence not only the, the people that we see directly, but also indirectly there, I guess, the, the friends and family, the communities that we're a part of, yeah. zooming out into our context and seeing what the major issues and problems are, and then seeing what we can do within our capacities yeah. as part of our role as healthcare professionals. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, what we're just going to burn through all of our resources, trying to desperately manage the symptoms of a sick society, right? A bit like burning a person burns through their resources, desperately trying to manage the symptoms before we help them understand the wider context of this, you know? That's what we're trying to do. So well said, Laura. Like I said earlier, I could talk to you for, for hours <laughs> at a time. For the listeners to find out more about you, up and coming mm -hmm. projects as well. Here's some exciting news with courses. Yep. So um, I have to say that together with my friend, uh, Christine, we run Pain Geeks, which is an international reading community. Um, and Every month we curate readings around philosophy, science, theory, uh, social sciences and humanities um, that are really about understanding pain. Um, and then we discuss together. So we have a live discussion. It's a really nice way of meeting people from around the world with different perspectives. Remember I said there's 8 billion different perspectives in the world. So if you're only sampling a hundred of them, 
you know, maybe, or maybe even only two or three, it's time to branch out. Um, so that's what we do with Paying Geeks. And this year we've got Sandy Hilton, who is an excellent clinician and academic and thinker uh, from the United States of America. Um, she's going to be coming over to Amsterdam. So she's hopping the pond, coming over to Amsterdam. She'll be here with us for two days, but we are also, because we're a digital uh, international community, we're going to online stream it. So you can buy a ticket to be there for the online streaming of it, or you can come and join us in Amsterdam and have some fun, uh, which is also wonderful. So you can head over to paynggeeks.community to find out about that. Also for the Dutchies and the Europeans, um, I am going to be teaching ACT in the clinic, which is a two-day training uh, on ACT. So it's not a teaching really, it's more like a training um, on ACT where we get to learn it, do it, feel it interact with it integrate it i'm going to be doing that in belgium and then um i will also be supporting the noi group uh which is a new collaboration this year to help uh more dutch speaking clinicians explore graded motor imagery in their practice so if you're in and around this area or you you know you speak dutch a little bit and you want to come over to that you're very welcome um, and the other thing that I do is a clinical coaching pod, which is a monthly membership subscription type thing to um, the resources that I create, uh, blogs, there's a, a interviews with other clinicians who are doing social justice work in there as well, which reminds me, you need to come on this, Daniel, uh, you need to come on that, um, that section, we'll, we'll put that down in pencil. Um, uh, to get you on to do that. And then um, I also, there's also a part of that you do, you know, I deliver two opportunities per month for clinicians to have coaching, sort of coaching supervision with me. So uh, to pop on and share cases or problems or questions, or we'll think about things. Um, and this is a small community. So I'm hoping that this will grow as people become more engaged with um, looking for this kind of support. Uh, so that's what I'm doing mostly this year. Um, yeah, so thanks for the opportunity to share that. And you can find me on Twitter, so Laura Rathbone, or you can find me on Instagram, laura.painspecialist, um, or my website, laurarathbone.com. I yeah. cannot recommend highly enough coaching pods and keeping <laughs> up to date with everything that Laura does. Laura, it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Really appreciate you, you. and your work. Yeah. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one and jumping on a future pod this year. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. Thank you for everything you do, Daniel, and for all the support you offer people and for the opportunity to be here.